Well, who's the most spiritual person you know? I really want you to consider that. And once you've considered it, what metric are you using to come to that conclusion? I mean, spirituality is a pretty hot commodity these days. If you hadn't noticed, everybody's doing it. Uh, And if you're spiritual but not religious, all the better. Uh, But what, of course, is spirituality? What does it look like? What does it do? I mean, is the hermit who lives in the desert and avoids all worldly temptation, is that the spiritual one? Or is it the protester fighting against the latest injustice or for some stand, a moral stand to be taken publicly? Is that the most spiritual one? Or maybe the most spiritual one is the one who is the most faithful in his quiet times and journaling and so forth. I mean, what exactly does it look like? And how would we know if we saw it? I mean, I think often our approach in defining spirituality is choosing a marker that we can easily discern, something that we can name, maybe the correct denominational affiliation, uh, maybe a certain threshold of theological knowledge, or some discernible moral code that is followed, or at least can be uh, witnessed that it's being followed, complete with you know the correct political affiliation or views on this or that social issues, uh, or the proper nurture and education of your children. I mean, the good thing about those sorts of markers is that we can immediately identify who's in and who's out, and the people who get it and the people who don't. Well, as we begin our final descent in the book of Galatians, we do well to remember how the book began. You know, Paul's main concern was preserving a gospel of grace, grace that is true through and through, that's so generous in its distribution that it makes staid and moral and together people really concerned about what's going to happen to their property values if people start believing it. I mean, Paul has been so indignant in his claim that Jesus plus anything is an absolute distortion of the gospel and is so dangerous that those who teach it, Paul says, should be considered cursed to the lowest hell. I mean, Jesus is wonderful, they say. As long as you believe in Jesus and get circumcised, then we know that you're taking your faith seriously. Yes, Jesus, plus, I mean, maybe changing a few of your eating habits or keeping a special calendar, things that you find in the law of the Old Testament, the Torah. If you do those things, then we'll know that you really believed. And we'll know that you mean it. And you can join with us, the spiritual ones. But today, Paul wants to introduce true spirituality. We will be able to discern who is spiritual and who is not from the text. And to be honest, the findings are a little bit unsettling. And so I want us to see this morning, under three headings, true spirituals. And the first thing we see is that true spirituals restore. They restore. Paul begins his teaching on spirituality with this uh, somewhat you know, odd dose of reality. What community life among the redeemed, those who have been saved, those who, you know, for lack of a better term, are, are born again, this is what the community of saints really looks like. Addressing the brethren, Paul says... If you see your fellow brother or sister in the faith caught in a transgression, which means, of course, that Christians on this side of glory can and will and do get caught up in sin. And not just any sin. I mean, transgressions are the sorts of sins where you know what you're supposed to do, 
they're not accidents. You know what you're supposed to do. You understand what you're supposed to do, and you just say, no, I don't want to do that, and you do the opposite. Paul says when you see a brother caught in those sorts of sins, there's ways to handle it. So his example here is a brother or sister who knew right from wrong and decided they were going to do the wrong anyway, and in so doing, that sin has captured them by surprise. Maybe they thought they could do a one-off and get away with it, but here they are entangled and ensnared in a sin. What do spiritual people do in such a circumstance? I mean, what does he even mean first by that word spiritual? Literally, you can read it, you who are spirited people, meaning people of the Holy Spirit, which according to his epistle is all of you, those of you who have been named with the name of Christ. He said in this epistle already that we've been led by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We have the gift and the fruit of the Spirit. But in particular, he's told us at the conclusion of the last chapter that there are those who stay in step with the Spirit. And he's getting after that right here. Spiritual people are designated so because they bend their disposition to the disposition of the Spirit that dwells in them. They work along with the work of the Spirit, and it looks and mimics His work. And so notice, with the spirit of gentleness, Paul says, restore such a one who's been caught in transgression. Paul doesn't just say gentleness, but he says in a spirit of gentleness, signifying thereby that this is the acceptable way that the Spirit wants it handled, to administer tenderness in a situation where one is caught up in a sin, is to keep in step with the Spirit. I mean, it's His fruit, after all, the same fruit that we saw listed in Galatians chapter 5. On the flip side, those who, for instance, come harshly or judgmentally with just an utter inability to understand the sin of others, Paul would say that's an immature Christian, someone who hasn't quite gotten it yet. What he means by this word restore, it can quite literally mean like the mending of a net, something that has been broken and been put back into place, something that has been put back in good order, a good working shape. And so for this fallen brother, the goal is to put them back into order. In one sense, to integrate them back into the family of faith, but also to integrate them back with themselves and their relationship to God. And so the picture for Paul then is a church engaged in spiritual life, will be a church that's more akin to an ER or a triage center. You know, you'll notice what he doesn't say. When one who is caught in a transgression, you know, they're doing something that's clearly immoral and they're doing it on purpose, Paul doesn't say you should distance yourself and make sure that they're in isolation until they learn better. He doesn't say, you know, engage them in a stern talking to first and foremost. But he says, your first impulse and action should be for the desire for that sinner to be restored to the family of faith and the community of saints. Luther, when speaking on this verse, speaking to pastors in particular, says, this is how you restore a fallen sinner. Run to him. Reach out your hand. Raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words. Embrace him with motherly arms. It's interesting that Paul says that this is what spiritual people do. They go after sinners in order to restore them. And he says, and when they do, he says, be careful, watch out for yourselves. Why? 
says, the reason it's so dangerous, or the reason why you need to be careful, is that you have everything in common with that fallen sinner. I mean, the idea when we come to see someone uh, in a desperate situation or sinning flagrantly, and we say, like, well, how could they? We all know deep down exactly how they could, because it's the same way that we do. And Paul says to them, never forget your solidarity with the struggling, that there is this true kinship between you and them, and we all know it all too well, how we can get tripped up in sin. And so he says, go with the disposition of nearness, not distance. You're not coming as someone who can't understand what's going on, but someone who has the exact same nature as the person that you're coming to restore, which is why a certain amount of caution needs to be broached. One author writes, in other words, a true spirit of gentleness is is realistic in its assessment of itself. Because at the end of the day, we are no less vulnerable than our brother or sister who has fallen. Chesterton said, you know, men are dying to confess their sins. So they're so desperate for it, it's more than a beast is craving water after a hunt. He says, but they are also just as adverse to confessing their sins to hypocrites who will stand back and laugh at them when they know that they're engaged in the same sins. That's exactly what Paul's getting after. He's saying, approach these people with tenderness. One, because you have the same nature as them. Two, that's the way the Spirit's approached you. And three, you're not too far from being where they're at in the question of how would you want to be approached as well. So we restore is the first at least uh, aspect of those who are spiritual. But notice the next thing he says is that we bear. Paul continues, bear one another's burdens. According to the book of Galatians, those of the circumcision party, their law and their supposed keeping of it made them super spirituals, or they had something to boast in. That's why Paul is going to get into this boasting language for the rest of the chapter. We're circumcised. We keep kosher laws. We still keep in step with Torah. We have progressed in our spiritual life a little bit beyond you. And if you would join us in these things, you could also be spiritual. But notice for Paul, this type of spirituality, because it's based on the law, always creates distance. It has to. I mean, if you're that kind of spiritual person, that is spiritual because of how you are different from everyone else. I have done these things that they have yet to do. You will always need to keep those people at arm's length, lest you become unclean by hanging out with the uncircumcised and the uncouth, unless you too become defiled like they are. I mean, that's what the law does. It creates distance. It has to create distance. The law cannot come to offer any help to the broken. It can't offer any balm for those who are wounded. The, the, the law is a wonderful x-ray. It can tell you what's broken, but it's a horrible surgeon. It won't do anything to step in and fix. The law will give you a confirmation about something you already had a sneaking suspicion was true, <laughs> that your condition is fatal. It's broken, all right. But of course, the law can't reset the bone or do a surgery on your behalf. And Paul says, true spirituals, those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, they bear someone else's burden with them. 
Notice it's a communal command, and that assumes a lot as you come to the close of Galatians. It assumes that we all have burdens that we're currently bearing, that we all experience the brokenness of this age, that we all gather here this morning around the mutual wound, and no one gets out of this life unscathed from the brokenness that sin has brought into it. And it also assumes, not that only that we're all broken, but that we are not sufficient in ourselves to deal with the problems that we face. No one can go it alone. Everybody needs help and a hand up. You know, that word burden that Paul uses, often he uses it as an economic term throughout his epistles. So, you know, he's carrying a a burden on behalf of another church, meaning he's bringing a, a tithe from one church to the other because they're impoverished. And so it's not just social and emotional and psychological help that we need, but Paul's saying, no, this also means bearing with the practical, dirty, and daily things that your brothers and sisters face in this life. I mean, the burdens of sin and sorrow, of poverty, of doubt, failure, you know, loneliness, illness, divorce, disability depression. I mean, bearing burdens for Paul means entering into lives of others with empathy and time and concern in order to take on whatever mess you might discover there and bear it with them. Which sounds real hard when you have your own mess, doesn't it? Paul says when you do, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What does Paul mean by this? Some would argue that Paul is simply saying, after all this time, by doing this, you will keep the Mosaic law. (laughs) That seems odd for a couple of reasons. One, it seems that Paul is using this, really at the end of his epistle, as a pretty large rhetorical flourish. He's speaking to these people who say, we have kept the law of Moses, and those who haven't aren't quite with us yet. Uh, as far as spirituality. And so Paul says, oh, you want to be law keepers? Do this. And yeah, you won't fulfill necessarily the Mosaic law, but you'll just fulfill the law of Christ, you know, that one that we're all bound to by baptism. If you want to be law keepers, if you love the law of Moses, well, this law belongs to Jesus. And what is it that he's talking about? I mean, what does he mean by that? Well, he's told us what the, the, the command is, bear one another's burdens. And when you do that, when you bear someone else's burden, the law of Christ is fulfilled in in doing so. It clearly shows that this is the law of love that Christ has already told us about in his own ministry. When he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he defines it. "By By this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. And how did he show his love for us, no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In one sense, yes, bearing the burdens of others fulfills the love thy neighbor command from the Mosaic law, no doubt. But in a very real sense, this idea of bearing one another's burdens turns the law on its head. Instead of making a fence to keep out that which is unclean, which is what the law does all throughout its tenure in the Old Testament, right? 
This, instead of staying uh, clear of the unwanted and unclean, this ethic opens its arms and welcomes in the unclean. It runs at full sprint toward the the sinner in order to not only claim them, but to cover them and to join them in whatever mess they find themselves in. You'll notice the law, for all of its glory, can never bear our burdens. It'll just give us burdens to bear. It never will lift a finger to help. It will lift a finger. (laughs) Uh, One to point the way that you must go. And, you know, that same finger will then hang in the air, wagging in your face when you don't quite get it right. The law tells you what to do, and it condemns you when you don't do it, but it cannot assist you. If you've ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, remember when Pilgrim, you know, uh, loses the scroll, and uh, he's, you know, a little bit desperate in in the looking for it, and, and Moses comes and starts to beat him, and he cries out, have mercy on me. And Moses responds, I can't show mercy. I'm the law. I don't know mercy in this way. But of course, this is the gospel that Paul has preached, this all-or-nothing gospel of sheer and utter grace where Jesus, who knew no sin, was numbered with the transgressors who bore the sins of many. And interestingly, this coming of God the Son in human flesh and bearing our sin produces, oddly, an ethic. And it's an ethic that's shaped like the cross, with arms outspread, welcoming and inviting sinners in. Our ethical principles now stem from the cross, and that is meant to be applied in specific situations by the power and direction of the Spirit, always motivated by the love that we've received. Notice what the Scripture says. He loved us, and He gave Himself for us. He bore our burdens. He entered into the depths of the sewer of our life. He got the stink all over Him. He bore it up in order to carry us out. And then He said to us, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if, as Paul said, Christ is being formed in us, If we have put on Christ, then we are putting on His shape, the shape of a cross, where we whose burdens have been born gladly bear the burdens of others. So you'll notice spirituals restore, and according to Paul, they bear, but also the final thing this morning is they're self-aware. Notice Paul says, "With he who thinks he's something, if he's nothing, he deceives himself. Well, when Paul's referring to the somethings here, he's referring to those in the community of Galatia who've propped themselves up as exemplars, the ones to be followed, the ones that can show the way for those who haven't quite gotten it yet, those of the circumcision, those zealous to maintain the certain set of markers to show who's really in and taking the faith seriously. And Paul says to them, be careful you might be self-deceived. Well, how would you know? Well, you'll know by what you're using as your measuring stick. I mean, those who know they are in the right are those who will struggle with gentleness 
because they're so full of zeal and can see so clearly where others are lacking that they're going to charge in with advice and admonishment, but never with mercy. And Paul says, you want to boast? Then test your own work. Your reason to boast will be in yourself, not in your neighbor. What does he mean by that? It seems strange because he's going to say, don't boast in anything in seven verses. Why does he say here, just check yourself out and then boast in you so you you can have your own things to, to prop up? In order for Paul to get at the pride of those troubling others in the congregation, he reminds them of this, that on the judgment day, God won't be comparing you with Tom and Judy. You know, everyone knows they're a mess. Uh, they won't be the standard. And that's the problem, is that we can always find someone doing a little bit worse than us, no matter how low we get, and that makes us feel better, right? I mean, sure, he's good-looking and has a great job and is very successful and his family seems all together, but he's a bad driver, you know. We're, we're real good at finding the one thing that we can say, that's one thing I have on that person, and therefore, by comparison, I'm doing okay. We always tip the favor in our, uh, the scales in our favor when we compare ourselves with others. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but as one man has said, that has not stopped us from comparing distances. But yeah, I might have fallen short of God's glory too, but not quite like you. And Paul says, hey, that's all fine. But if you want to really boast... Only look at yourself, your own track record, since you will answer for you and no one else on the judgment day. Each will bear his own load on that day. And if you think you're going to be judged in the view of others' failures, he says, you are sorely mistaken. And so Paul says, are you ready for that? I mean, how do you think you're going to do? Are you, are you ready to stand naked before God with all of your secrets known? How will you hold up under that scrutiny? And if you're honest, and if you have a modicum of self-awareness, you know things will not go well. And if you're smart, you will want someone else to stand in your place, to bear your burden. And of course, that's what happened. Christ died for you. Which means, hear me here, you did something bad enough that God himself had to put on human flesh and suffer the humiliations of this life and be condemned to death as a criminal in your stead. Something's wrong with you. I mean, that, that seems like a pretty uh, harsh sentence on the maker of all things in order to redeem you to himself. If you want to see who you are, See him hanging there. And stay there. Don't move from that place because that is where holiness lives, according to Paul. If you want to be spiritual, stay right there. Fully aware of yourself. Knowing that you have all things in common with that fallen brother. Knowing that their broken lives need help just like your broken life needs help knowing that when it comes down to it at the end of the day, you're not as good as you think you are, and you're surely not as good 
as you show yourself to others. Because there's a huge difference in the way that you, will, you and I will act when we know that we're right versus when we know that we're broken. See, there's a whole group of people in Galatia that know that they're right. And they will not rush in to mend those who are fallen. They won't get their hands dirty to bear the ugly burdens of others. They will stand at a distance and give advice and admonishment to how people are not measuring up. But if you know that you're broken, your boasting will be where it belongs. In the cross of Christ, your only hope. And if that is your only hope, why can't it be the hope of the broken person sitting next to you? when the bottom falls out of their life? And why can't it be enough to motivate you to join with them in that brokenness, knowing there's going to come a day when you need it to? May that be truly the way of our church, that our spirituality would not be and that we got it right, but that we saw how wrong it all was and that Christ has borne our burdens, and therefore we are eager to restore those who have fallen, to bear the burdens of those who are needy, and to be aware of ourselves, knowing that we're not who we pretend to be. And it's okay, because Christ has been all that we need on our behalf. Let's pray.